Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. Speed is becoming a necessity in customer experience and marketing. Today I chatted with Jay Bear, the founder of Convince and Convert, the best-selling author, and a content marketing legend. We chatted about speed of responsiveness in marketing and customer experience, how you should think about creating content, and the importance of talking to customers. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Jay, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me on. How did you get into marketing? You've been around forever. When I got out of college, I, I was reading your stuff, for, and that's how I started learning marketing. So I want to know, how did you even get into this marketing space? Kind of accidentally. Uh, I was a political science major in school, and I worked in politics uh, for a bit after I graduated. And then I realized that that's not really a business that I want to be in full time. It's uh, kind of a, a tough gig. So I got into what we would now sort of consider to be traditional marketing, right? Because there was no internet uh, and did that for a little bit. And then I was the spokesperson for the Arizona Department of Juvenile Corrections. So my job was to give tours of the juvenile prison among other things, and talk to the press and things like that. And I was 23 years old, so I was pretty young to be a spokesperson. And it was okay, but not really. And I was having beers with some friends of mine, and they were like, hey, we started this internet company, and it's starting to get kind of big, and we don't know very much about marketing or communications. And I said, well, that's okay, because I don't want to ever give any more tours of this prison. And so I walked in the next day and quit and started a day later, as the vice president of marketing for an internet company, having never actually been on the internet, because these are the days where it was AOL and CopyServe and Prodigy, and you know it was like a walled garden. The open internet was kind of a weird, scary, nerdy place. So that was a very interesting first <laughs> couple of days at work. And we ran that business for a bit and grew it, and then I got hired away by a corporation who was starting to spin up a big internet marketing and, and uh, local commerce and, and local content website. So. I kind of accidentally got involved in, in digital, and I've only done two smart things, really, in my life, uh, Daniel. One was to convince my wife to marry me, and it took a lot of convincing. And second was to get involved in the internet before it actually really even existed uh, and have the good sense to, to largely stay involved until today. I love it. The, the first one is very relatable. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. We were talking before this, and you recently did a research study on speed in marketing and how responsive times have gone up with Amazon and just the the need for speed of responsiveness. So how do you go about thinking of how speed is going to impact marketing down the line and how should marketing think about this? One of the things that never stops is the acceleration towards rapidity. So when I started in my career, like as an intern, they didn't even have FedEx, right? So we would like mail something to a client and be like, hey, let us know how you like this press release. 
and they'd mail it back in a couple of days, right? Like it was, you had a lot of time to iterate. Uh, and I've been doing this, you know, 30 years now, and I've never heard a client or a company or a consumer say, nah, I, I've been thinking about it and it's okay if you guys just do that more slowly. <laughs> Nobody ever says that. And, and expectations around speed always escalate, right? What was fast three years ago is commonplace today. And it's one of the big challenges, I think, for business is to continue to get faster. Ironically, as companies grow, a lot of times they have different, more process people, just overall BS. And so it actually slows them down. Even though they get bigger, they also get slower, which is kind of counterintuitive. And and so this is a huge issue for marketing because the most recent report from Salesforce from last fall suggests that somewhere between 80 and 85% of companies globally, the marketing department is ultimately responsible for customer experience. And this new research project that I just uh, released last week for the first time shows that of all the different things you can do from a customer experience perspective to increase uh, brand value, responsiveness is one of the most important. In fact, two-thirds of customers say that speed is as important as price. And half of all customers will pay substantially more if they can get whatever they need faster. And that's both faster delivery, faster interaction with the brand, et cetera. And so a lot of organizations, the marketing team has some relationship, maybe it's an owned relationship, but if nothing else, it's a partner relationship with um, the kind of the frontline customer service team, whether it's phone, email, chat, social, whatever. And the ability and imperative to be quicker at all of that is really, really important. People will just leave if you're not as fast as they expect you to be. And I've got a lot of really interesting data on that. One of the challenges of that that I see is how do you keep speed and keep the authentic human side of speed? What we see right now is what a lot of brands are doing is, is trying to categorize the issue as quickly as possible. This is where chatbots and AI and machine learning can be so useful. So as quickly as possible, you categorize the issue. Like, is this a fairly simple question? Like, where's my couch? Or is it more nuanced? Like there's a rip in my couch and we have a conversation about it. If the bot can skim those kind of procedural questions off the top, then it frees up the human agents to actually engage in the ones that take more time and, and require more empathy and, and humanity. That's what most brands are trying to do is to say, hey, let's leave the people to do the hard stuff and let the computers do the easy stuff. How do marketing departments today, how should they interact with the CX department? And Because you see a lot, a lot of people think marketing stops at the sale. They don't think about how they should, every touch point is marketing. So how should marketing teams in, think about interacting with CX department? And then how could they add marketing touch to these faster touch points? It's incredibly important because if marketing is, is making promises that the customer experience can't match, then you're setting yourself up for customer dissatisfaction and churn. Not to mention the fact, like I wrote a whole book, Hug Your Haters, about this idea that we spend 
way too little time, money, effort on customer retention. And, and that's still true. The book's been out for five or six years, and it's still true. Marketers are so conditioned to focus their energies and their talents on customer acquisition, and they just don't put enough effort into customer retention, even though 100% of the business professionals in the world know that mathematically it's easier to grow a business if you don't lose customers out the back door, right? If you don't have that that metaphorical leaky bucket. Like we know that everybody tuned into the show knows that like this is accepted doctrine, right? There is nobody who's going to argue that point. Like, oh no, churn's good. Like nobody ever says that. But yet think about your own marketing department. Think about your own team. Think about how many meetings you have about customer acquisition and how many meetings you have about customer retention. Think about how much content you make about customer acquisition, how much content you make for retention. Think about how many social media campaigns you do for acquisition and how many you do for retention. It's ridiculous. It's such a puzzle to me. Like we know this thing to be true, yet we universally do the opposite. It's very confusing to me. And that's certainly an area where where marketing and CX need to cooperate because the customer exper- experience team, insofar as there is one, and not everybody has a separate team, obviously, but they're the ones who know what the customer needs from an informational and reputational perspective. So there's this concept I have called the uncertainty gap. And the uncertainty gap is the distance between what you know about your business and your products and all your stuff and what the customer knows. And one of the most important things you can do as a business is close that gap, right? Uncertainty prevents purchase, creates angst and and churn. And the customer experience department and the marketing department should be working together to close that gap, right? The, The more you can inform customers and do it quickly, the better off you'll be. So on the CX side, the speed to response needs to be fast, but how do you think about when you look at all these B2B companies today, for example, the speed to even get to chat with a salesperson for a demo or talk to them about pricing takes forever. And a lot of people don't have time to spend an hour on a call. So how do you think about the speed to first touch and what should that first touch be for the customer? I knew acquired customer. Yeah. I mean, ultimately there probably should be no touch, right? So here's a a crazy stat. It's not from my research. It's from Gartner. Nearly half of all millennial B2B buyers prefer an entirely seller-free experience. They want to learn about the product, compare the product, demo the product, and buy the product without ever talking to a salesperson. So this whole idea, like request a demo and someday we'll call you back if we have time to give you a demo is dumb, right? You're much better off having a demo that is self-servable, right? Like click, watch the demo. It's a video, series of videos, whatever. And then let us know if you got questions that aren't answered by the demo, that kind of thing. This, This idea that somehow an interaction with a salesperson is ipso facto more likely to close a sale is no longer true. Right now, there's certainly very complex B2B scenarios where everything is bespoke and custom and you can't really off the shelf it. Like I get all that, but that's the exception, not the rule. You know, what I always tell my clients and they always kind of raise an eyebrow and that's okay, is what justification do you have for a customer not being able to give you money without a human conversation? 
What's your actual justification for that? It's not more efficient. It's not more cost-effective for the business. Yeah, I also think it puts a lot of pressure on marketing teams who just thought that they should give leads out and they didn't think about, hey, <laughs> right. I have to convince someone to buy something. Um, yeah, it's not just raise your hand, it's raise your hand and go all the way through the funnel. You raise a really interesting point there, Daniel. Like It puts a lot of pressure, especially on content. Because if you're saying, hey, let's replace or at least give the opportunity to replace some of the face-to-face -face or, or you know human conversation about product quality and sales and all that, if you're going to replace that with self-serve, that's got to be a lot of content, a lot of super specific low funnel content, and also in kind of multiple formats too. So text, videos, configurators, you know, hostage notes, whatever. It's a lot. And most content teams aren't really up to the task yet to create content all the way through the funnel. But if you actually do a content inventory for most brands, unsurprisingly, the overwhelming majority of the content they have is very high funnel. It's awareness stuff. It's maybe a little bit of product comparison stuff. But then when you get into the really low funnel, like, well, what about this weird scenario? Like there just isn't. It's like, well, talk to us, talk to a real person. But ultimately, I think all that content's going to have to get created. From what you said before, going back to the conversation we just had at the beginning, it's you get that those nuanced stuff from customer service who deals with them all the time asking those new and questions like how does this product integrate with this with this product how does what does this button do to do that like all those new and stuff comes from you could talk to customer service or ask people where do they get stuck in the funnel just a lot of people just don't spend time asking those questions to get those answers for content one of the things i always recommend is that the marketing team really insists that the customer service or customer experience team or customer success team or what whatever taxonomy you want to use, whoever's talking to customers, which is not marketers. I mean, that's one of the things, let me just go on a quick rant here. One of the biggest problems with marketing as a discipline is that marketing is responsible for creating information that resonates with the customer. Cool. Except for the fact that marketing never talks to customers not in any routine or comprehensive way. Yeah, you might do some interviews here or there, or some focus groups or some surveys or whatever, but, but marketers are not on the phone or answering emails from real customers all the time. They're just not. So the people who actually understand customer pain points and really understand what customers need and want are the service team and at some level the sales team and maybe even the finance team, depending on the business. So if as a marketing organization, you're not tapping into those parts of your company and saying, what are customers saying? What are they struggling with? What do they love? And using that as the raw material for what you're saying as a marketer, I think you're, you're missing a lot of opportunities. Yeah, it's crazy because I've been in marketing for a while and I took, I guess, solution consulting role previously. And I was talking to customers all the time and then I was realizing how much I didn't know about customers and yeah. how much the marketing team, the marketing team doesn't knew, know about customers. Yeah. About a lot. They knew about a lot about like the overall chain, like pains, but not like mm -hmm. the nuanced stuff that they talk about on a daily basis that they actually care about. Like they knew like, okay, this is a pain point in a marketing funnel cause I'm a marketer or something like that, but they didn't know 
like customers are talking about XYZ all the time on the phone. And it's just crazy. Just when you put yourself in a customer success seat, you see all these things that you don't realize as a marketer. Way, way, way back, my very first real job, I was an intern at a marketing and comms firm in Phoenix called Nelson Ralston Rob. And this was the summer of 1988. And I was 18 years old and I was an intern. And my boss there, Bob Rob, who ran the shop, called me in like first week. And it's like, hey, I want you to always remember something. I'm like, wow, I'm surprised this guy's even talking to me since he's a CEO and I'm an intern. He said, I want you to always remember something. We don't learn anything of value for our clients sitting in this office. And I never forgot that because the, the point is that marketers sitting in an office talking to marketers doesn't really give you any insights about the actual consumer. And so a lot of businesses uh, then, and, and less so now because of hybrid work, but, but even in the recent past, are like, hey, make sure you're in the office so we know you're working, right? Make sure you know, you're here and you guys are being collaborative and you're in conference rooms and all that. His perspective, and again, this is in the 80s, his perspective is get out of the office. I don't really want to see you in the office. Go visit our clients. And more importantly, go visit the clients of our clients. Go observe them in the wild. Watch customers buy. Watch customers use. And that kind of anthropological approach to marketing is incredibly valuable. And I got to tell you, since I've seen the entire rise of the internet from the beginning, it's one of the things that I think has really hurt marketing as a discipline. We have so much technology and software and click a button and it spits out an insights report and all that. But we don't really observe customers in the wild very much anymore. And, and I think it makes us worse as marketers. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to all the old school advertisers and how they used to go sit in shops and just listen to customers talk or go talk to it, it's so much. I we just never, don't do that anymore because no. like, well, we can just run We can just press a button. You know, we could do a social listening report and as if that's the same. It's in the same vein, I guess, but it's not the same. What is like a marketing hill you would die on? Mm, that's a great question. A marketing hill I would die on is probably that relevance is the killer app. That if you're convinced that the problem with your marketing is that your customers don't have time, that they're too busy and they're ignoring you because they just have too much going on in your life, you're lying to yourself. When you give a customer or a prospect the information they need in the format they prefer, and you give it to them at the right time in the consideration funnel, the time necessary to consume that content, whether it's a video or an ebook or a webinar or whatever, that time magically appears. So relevancy creates time and relevancy creates attention. So if your marketing is not working as well as you think it could or should, in almost every case, the, the root problem is that it's not relevant enough for the consumer. And the way you do that is you make it more specific, right? So I guess if I want to make my hill a little more bumper sticker friendly, I would say broad is flawed. I love that. Because I, I hate the argument of that people just lie, lay back on and say attention spans are shrinking. You hear it it's not true. Time. Yeah. It's not true. It's not attention spans are shrinking. It's tolerance for irrelevant information is shrinking. Yeah, because 
it's just like our brains are a filter and evolution is helping us filter out crap, basically. People will sit down and binge an entire season of Stranger Things now in a row. Nobody used to do that. Nobody would watch eight consecutive hours of television that didn't even exist. So this idea that attention spans are inherently less is not true. It's just that we won't give brands a pass on mediocre marketing anymore. That's something that I totally believe and I hear it all the time. I've heard like five marketers tell me, yeah, you know, attention spans are are bad, so we have to do this. Yeah, of course you need a hook. Everybody needs a hook, but that's part of good content and relevant right. content. Right, doesn't matter how long yeah, the piece yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know how uh, many speeches I've seen people give with the goldfish example, right? Like, yeah. you know, the goldfish, you only have seven-second attention span, which is the same as a goldfish. Number one, it's not scientifically true. And number two, it's such a lazy approach to marketing. Like, well, I guess the reason our marketing is bad is because consumers don't pay attention. Well, no, the reason our marketing is bad is because you're bad at marketing. I know you talked about speed, but what are some things that are happening in the marketing space that not a lot of marketers are jumping on now? Um, like a trend that you're seeing that it's taking a lot of marketers a slow time to even move to that trend. This is not new information, but it is interesting to me how many marketers are still reluctant to get involved on TikTok the ability to acquire an audience there, the ability to generate huge reach and really compelling brand to consumer interactions is frankly unparalleled. It's everything that Meta isn't today and more. I've got some clients that have kind of jumped on that platform and the results are extraordinary, not because of me, but just because of them. Is it for everybody? Well, maybe not. But like every social network, it's aging up and categories are getting broader. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities there. And it's surprising how, how, how many brands are still on the sidelines. How much do you think of it is them just not knowing to create the content? Or is it it doesn't fit into their brand guidelines that they... Yeah, I think it's three things. One... It feels a little weirdo to them. So like, I don't know, we, we're not really in touch with that because they don't use it, right? Personally. Second, it feels maybe a little frivolous, I guess, as a platform. That's, I guess, the word I would use. Like, it feels kind of lightweight or whatever. And third, they just feel like it's too much of a unregulated kind of Wild West scenario. But none of those things are actually true. And the content approach is not that hard. It's really not. And in fact, in some ways, in some ways, it's easier than other social platforms because the super produced, crazy, slick, really polished approach doesn't usually work as well, right? So it's easier to kind of say, hey, let's just have a good idea and execute that, that good idea and even more like behind the scenes kind of stuff works really well in many cases too. So I, I think it's it's worth trying. I have my own TikTok channel now, which is all about tequila education and tequila reviews. So that's my, my side hustle. And I started it a few months ago and it's been great. It's super fun. You know, it's not a overwhelming success, but it's a pretty niche topic as well. Uh, but it's amazing to see how fast you can build an audience there versus anywhere else. Yeah, that's a great um, 
pivot because you re- recently did something where, and not many people know you're a tequila connoisseur, but you recently audited 68 tequila brands. Yeah. Who would from, uh, you could give the criteria of how you audit, yeah, sure. but like, what are, what are some cool findings that you found from auditing all these tequila? Yeah. Brands? So, so I, I said, Hey, let's combine what I know about business to, with what I love, which is uh, tequila and agave spirits. So there are hundreds of active tequila brands, hundreds. It's a very diffuse market, hundreds of brands. And because of the nature of the tequila business, once you get out of the top five or 10 brands, right, which, which we all know, you know, Patron and Don Julio and Salsa and Hornitos and, you know, the big ones that you see everywhere, once you get out of that, it is a shit show from a competitive standpoint. I mean, it's like, it's tough. And, and so marketing is a huge part of it for these brands uh, because they want to sell it to the consumer at grocery. They want to sell it to consumer, direct to consumer e-commerce. And then certainly they want consumers to look at a bar and be like, oh, I recognize that bottle. I want that one. That's all marketing, marketing and packaging. And Instagram is one of the key platforms that tequila brands used to market their product. Uh, I would love to have done this analysis on TikTok, but not enough tequila brands are on TikTok yet. Um, But on Instagram, most of them are. And I ran an analysis uh, with the help of my friends at Rival IQ, which is a great um, social media competitive software package. And we looked at, all right, show me all the tequila brands that are posting at least twice a week, if I recall correctly, a couple times a week. So at least they're pretty active and have at least 2,500 followers. So at least they've been doing it a bit and have at least, I think it was 80% of their overall engagement was organic. So there were a few brands that you might recognize like Patron who would have made the list of 68, but have a high enough investment in Instagram advertising that some of their success is purchased. And we wanted to kind of set that aside and only look at organic engagement on Instagram just to kind of see what the content strategy looked like. So it was a pretty in-depth analysis. It's like a 16-page report. And so we ended up with 68 brands that met that those conditions. And it was really interesting because there's a lot of celebrity-owned tequila brands. You, you might know that, right? So like Kendall Jenner has one. Obviously, George Clooney has one. George Strait has one. Sammy Hagar has one. Joe Jonas has one. The Rock has one. Like there's a lot of celebrity tequila brands. So it was interesting to see the impact of celebrity on Instagram results. What, what do you think it would be? From the celebrity brands, I think they would have the highest followers, but the, the least engagement because... I feel like celebrities have way too much broad reach, not niche reach. Like if I, I would rather buy from someone who like you knew tequila and could talk about tequila than someone who has just made a brand. And it's partially because a lot of these celebrity tequila brands are relatively new. So they have big audiences, but not so big where it starts to mess with the algorithm. You know what I mean? Like at some point you get so many followers that it's really impossible mathematically to have a high engagement rate. Most of them are not quite there yet. So of the top 11 brands of tequila on Instagram, seven were celebrity-owned or celebrity-backed you know, backed or whatever. Um, the number one brand is Via One, uh, which is Joe Jonas's brand. They're not a particularly large tequila brand, and they're relatively new, not particularly well-regarded in the tequila community. But from an Instagram perspective specifically, they were the best. That's crazy. Um, but I could see it because Joe Jonas – Social presence is very right. authentic and, and, and you know, and look, if you're into Joe Jonas, 
you might not buy the tequila, but you're definitely hitting like on the post, right? You know, so that absolutely helps. I did actually see the Jonas Brothers in concert once. Many, many years ago, uh, I got some Father of the Year points and took my daughter to Hannah, Montana with the Jonas Brothers opening. And I've been to hundreds of concerts in my life. I actually started the student radio station at my university back in the day. Uh, so I, I've I've been into live music my whole life. The loudest concert I've ever been to was Hannah Montana and the Jonas Brothers because it was 19,000 preteen girls <laughs> screaming at the top of their lungs and like hitting a collective pitch. Like I thought my head was going to explode. It was unreal. Uh, and I will say the Jonas Brothers uh, were not awful. All respect to, to Joe Jonas. I love that you're taking your passion though. And, and I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't do is like taking their passion and putting it into marketing and seeing where it goes with your TikTok and doing this analysis because I think the best content comes from like that passion. The long -term I, I think it seeps out, right? You yeah. know, and it's uh it's definitely fun to do. And and the reason I did kind of do the report, one I was just interested in two, like I know a lot about tequila, but there's a number of people who know quite a bit more than me. And so my angle was, well, if I'm going to sort of make a name for myself in this sort of tequila influencer world, what do I know that they don't know? And it's the business side, right? Like I know business and marketing and they don't as much in most cases. So I'm like, all right, let's, let's lean into that. The other, and here's the truth. Um, hopefully nobody from the government's uh, tuning into the show. I, I'm doing a lot of tequila tastings for corporate clients, especially through webinars. So we'll ship bottles out to clients and things like that. And then we'll kind of talk a little bit about marketing and then talk about tequila. It's a lot of fun. Since I'm doing that a fair bit, all of my tequila purchases now are write-offs. So that is the real master plan, my friend. Making all your tequila that. purchases a business expense. That's, that's the deal. What is one thing, if someone was starting out in marketing today, that you would tell them that they will come and thank you five years later? Well, I, I, my daughter just started in marketing a year ago, uh, so this is fresh in my mind. I think ultimately there's only three jobs in marketing. You're either on the creative side, the people side, or the math side. That's, that's it. Like you, you, There's a lot of titles and whatever, but that's, there's, only, there's only three pieces to it. And you got to understand at some point, and ideally pretty quickly, which of those three is your deal, and then just really focus on on that piece of it. Not that creatives don't need to know math; they do, and not that kind of the personality folks and the and the human capital folks don't need to be at least creative enough to be dangerous; they do. But understanding which marketing role is for you and doing that as quickly as possible is is I think very good career advice. I love that you you made it into the simplest form of what marketing roles are. I think not many people think about that. I think obviously it's great if you could be very creative and understand that things need to convert. Absolutely. Or, or you're great with people, but you also understand that you need to get customers and it needs to differentiate yourself in the market. Like you have to nail your specialty and then that's where other people start helping you eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the best thing you can do is nail your specialty and then be that that really valuable player who has a sort of the Venn diagram 
that also knows a fair bit about the other parts, right? You know, you're, you're never going to be the best at all three. Um, but if you're really, really good at one and decent enough at the other two, yeah, that's when you got somebody uh, who can really make a difference in an organization. Who in the marketing space currently has been inspiring you? You know who's really great at sort of thinking through, we were talking earlier about kind of mid and low funnel and churn and stuff like that. Uh, my buddy Joey Coleman is is so good at that. His book, uh, Never Lose a Customer Again, is awesome. Uh, really, really fantastic. He's a great thinker around retention. Let's see. My buddy Jesse uh, from the Savannah Bananas, uh, his new book, Fans First, is incredible, all about how to delight customers. And uh, it's very in the same kind of vein as my book, Talk Triggers, around word of mouth. It's really awesome. He's great. I'm always inspired by Mitch Joel. He's such a thoughtful leader and just a brilliant, brilliant guy. He says things all the time that I'm like, wow, that's incredible. And then, you know, I I have created a dozen podcasts in my career and I've hosted, I don't know, a thousand episodes of podcasts or some crazy number like that. Uh, and so I'm always paying attention to what's happening in the podcast world and Tom Webster is, is uh, you know, is, is the leading voice in that space. Like, you know, what's happening with podcasts, with monetization of podcasts, with marketing in podcasts. He's the best. And so I, I pay attention to that also. The last question I have for you, because I know we talked about sp- speed and we talked about tequila brands. But the last question, since this has been your specialty for years, how have you been thinking about the evolution of content in the current era and beyond, like how should people start thinking about content and what 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 actually is good content? Because it's just so many people are saying like create content and not many people know what that actually means. Yeah, the best way to go about it is to literally do a detailed customer journey map and then lay on top of that all the questions that a customer or prospect might reasonably have at each of those nodes and then create content that answers all those questions and then create that same content in multiple formats. So the holy grail is customer can get all questions answered all the way through, including post-purchase. And if they only want to watch videos, period, they can do that, right? If they only want to read, they can do that. So you, you, you kind of go down topically and then across from a format standpoint, that kind of X, Y axis is the best way to go about it. And I think one of the challenges with content marketers today is they're trying to make it too much of a creative exercise. Yeah, there's some cool stuff you can do, especially top of the funnel. But here's what you should do. Just answer all the questions that customers have with content. Like, do that and and then worry about other stuff. I totally believe that people, I think, have been overthinking content and you could do things, answer those questions in a creative way, but sure, of course, but at the same time, you're trying to get someone educated to make a a purchase for you. Yeah. I I wrote this post years ago on convince to convert that, that basically nobody is interacting with your brand to be entertained unless you're an entertainment brand. Right. I mean, if you're Netflix or, you know, your Comedy Central or whatever, different story. But most of us are not that and and are not going to be. Nobody's coming to be entertained, right? They're, they're coming because they have a question or they have a problem. That's it. That's the only reason 
that they're coming to your website, that they're engaged with your content at all. They have a question or they have a problem. So figure out what the questions are, figure out what the problems are, address those. And then if you got time remaining, then, you know, whatever, do a puppet show. Well, this has been awesome. I want to give you a minute or two to talk about what you're up to, where people could find you, anything about you. Thanks so much. Uh, if you like tequila, follow me on uh, Instagram and TikTok. Uh, just look for Tequila J Bear. Um, if you like marketing, I'm on all the places, of course. But the best place to reach out and hang out is with my newsletter. It's called The Bear Facts. comes out every 14 days on email uh, as well as on LinkedIn. And each issue includes a marketing or customer experience lesson. And it's usually something that happens in my own weirdo, unusual life. Uh, and I try and create a little story or an allegory that, that teaches some important uh, principles. And then each edition of the newsletter also includes a podcast review, a book review, sometimes a tequila review and, and other stuff that I think is cool. So some people, uh, and not just my mom, say they think it's the best uh, email on the internet. I don't know if I would go that far, but it's pretty damn good and I work hard at it. So if you go to thebearfacts.com, B-A-E-R, thebearfacts.com, you can sign up for free. I love that you said your mom because I have this thing, a joke that if you want to get your first 20 news that of subscribers, tell your mom. And I think it's, it's exactly. <laughs> she'll, share really with, she'll share with the ladies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. ladies. yeah, my mom is the president of the, of the quilt guild. So yeah, all the quilt guild ladies, uh, they don't know anything about marketing, but they, they read the newsletter. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining. And I appreciate it. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.